Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Cattlecast. I am Kat Hart and today we'll be speaking to James Russell, covering so many topics I can't even begin to mention. So then, James, straight over to you. My name is James Russell. I was a cattle vet in practice. I graduated from the RBC in 2002 and worked with cows right through until 2017 in different places, ending up in Peak District up in Derbyshire, working really from lowland dairy through to some quite marginal upland beef farms up towards the top of the Peak District. So quite a range there and was involved in the management of that practice for a number of years as a director. And during that time, became involved with BCBA as well, largely, I think, through an interest which many have wondered where it originated, including me, in in TB, and trying to bring that to the BCBA board. And then more latterly, working with the British Veterinary Association uh, as an officer, so as president last year. Yes, it sounds like you graduated 20 years ago. Does it feel that long or, or has time flown when you've been having fun? Oh, every moment's been a joy, hasn't it? It's been great. But it was an interesting time to graduate because, of course, we were the cohort of students who were taken out of some of our our clinical studies to help with the foot and mouth effort. And I've often said that, you know, I think that was quite formative, really, in the way that I thought about the relationship between farmers and vets, seeing the huge pressures that people were put under. I was down in South Wales for, for that period of time and you know, just seeing the, the challenges of, of stripping away a herd that somebody's built up over a long period of time, and as well as the sort of economic impact that that had on people. And it was really important, actually, in my understanding of how that relationship worked and what it needed to be successful. And it also, I think, puts me in a position where I'm not going to say it was the same as COVID at all, because it was a, you know, it was an animal disease and the people were emotionally challenged, but people weren't dying at that time. But I think the similarity with people who are just graduating at the moment that we do recognise is that bit of sort of being taken away from, from clinical studies because of a greater need. So, yeah, not the same, not pretending it's the same, but I do feel a degree of empathy with those who've come through over the last couple of years. Yeah, and just that realisation of epidemiology is more than just, you know, a chapter in a book. It actually affects your lives, which is quite different. That, that, it's interesting, isn't it? Even in the year 2000, we were being taught of foot and mouth as being a historic disease. <laughs> yeah, we were proven slightly wrong. I think it gives us a great opportunity as vets, doesn't it? That you know, our number is now just part of something that people talk about down the pub. <laughs> what, what, yeah. what better time will we have to really get across some of the concepts that we've been trying to get across in terms of disease control to our farmers? It's great in that sense. It is quite useful that the different use of stats becoming normal day. And actually, when we first went into COVID lockdown, I was actually doing my GCSEs back in the 01 foot and mouth outbreak. And we as a family farm decided to shut ourselves in for nine months. So at least as a family unit, we had gone through it once through very different circumstances. But yeah, it definitely brings on different pressures. So you were mentioning there how you became um, involved in BCBA. Would you like to chat a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. BCVA is a great member organisation and does a fantastic job representing uh, the interests of cattle vets, but also I think in the education um, side, which is where it really majors. And I I see really the forte of what BCVA can offer through Congress and through other CPDs. And I've been a member since I was a student, slightly on and off. But the reason for that is because of the the quality of ongoing education, I think, that it's brought out. And so, yeah, I became involved with BCVA at a board level and really because I wanted to be part of contributing towards that. And also, we were at a point where we knew we needed to refresh 
our position on TB. Um, we'd had this very binary view of TB as being uh, you know, badgers bad, cattle good, really, I think, for a period of time. And that, that's not a criticism of those who built that model. It was a reflection of the evolution, I think, of our understanding of the disease. You know, we were in the wake of the Godfrey report and we knew that we wanted to do something a bit different. So uh, I don't say that's the only reason I was brought onto the board, but certainly a big part of what I did as a member of the board was to help kickstart, I think, that sort of refresh of BCVA's TB position. It's since been done far better by Sarah and, and Rebecca and others and really turned into something which I think is a great position for BCVA to be able to make arguments on an ongoing basis about all sorts of different areas of that policy. So I really commend you guys for that. I remember when I was on board when we started uh, to do that and it was a different step trying to do policy and trying to do different papers and different working groups. But I think it's massively opened the door to starting different things. And now we've done lots of sort of sustainability and I think there's a few more in the pipeline to come. So that was quite a different way of working, which is nice to see. Yeah, I mean, you've just touched on, I think, probably the biggest point on the agenda for all of us at the moment in sustainability. And I'm I'm sure we'll come to discuss that shortly. But absolutely, all of us have got to have a focus on that. Whatever our role is within the veterinary profession now, whether it's clinical, whether it's political, whether it's policy, you know, it's just what do we do? And and I'm, I'm also really interested for us to begin to take sustainability outside of, if I say just thinking about our use of plastics, that's not to denigrate that. But to begin to think about it more in the round about economic sustainability, but also our well-being sustainability and all those different facets of it that are going to come together to make us a sustainable profession. Definitely. And that the economics is part of it, but equally the maintaining, you know, the workforce and recruiting the, the right people and having them in the right mental health place to continue that work in a sustainable way. It's a different way of looking at it, but it's trying to encompass all the different areas. Yeah, and I think we've got to recognise, haven't we, that we're working in a different environment. You know, certainly when I was school kid working around with different vets and thinking about, you know, the ways they worked, the pressures they worked under, the hours that they worked, you know, we are in a different environment. And, you know, and I'm not really casting a judgment on that at the moment, just simply recognising that it's different. You know, just one example of that that I just love, it's actually a small animal example, but my old business partner, his dad was the founder of, of the business that he and I subsequently ran. And Dan tells the story of growing up at home and hearing his dad on the phone on a Saturday afternoon. And the side of the conversation that Dan heard was his dad saying, you're quite right, that does sound a terrible emergency. I'd like to see you first thing on Monday. And I think, you know, we've evolved, haven't we? That is not what we would expect from veterinary medicine, veterinary science. Now, uh, it's not what our clients would expect. And also, of course, our abilities to diagnose, our abilities to treat have expanded you know, just hugely, haven't they, over a similar period. So the way that we respond to that to make sure that we end up with a workforce who feel uh, confident and comfortable working in the environment that they're in, but also confident and comfortable to um, be able to say when to stop and when actually a treatment might not be the right thing to do. And you know, we would see all of that as part of the job of those of us in positions of seniority within the profession is to support people into a space where they can have those emotions and recognize that they're doing the best for the animal in front of them at that time or the herd in front of them at that time and that's a pretty good thing to be doing 
Yeah, no, it is mad to think now within some of the cities, you know, you can order your supermarket shopping and it can come within half an hour. And unfortunately, people and farmers expect that sort of urgency as well when they just send you a voice note or a WhatsApp message of a photo going, well, what should I do with this? And they forget that it's either four in the morning because they've started milking or equally 10 o'clock at night when they're going round. But of course, if you're not the vet on call, then should you be replying or not is always a difficult conversation. Yeah, big challenge, big challenge. And certainly that recognising each other's professional limits, isn't it, is important. And a huge part of that, one of the reasons I love being a farm vet, I think, is the relationship that you can have with clients, which I still maintain is different to the relationship that a small animal vet has with their clients, just by virtue of being in their home environment very often, being with them for prolonged periods of time very often, and seeing them through some quite significant ups and downs as well. And it's important, isn't it, that we both parties within that feel comfortable with how the relationship is run and uh, yeah we, we perhaps need to be a bit better don't we equipping people to have that conversation about you know these are my boundaries i know i've been made to feel awful at times for, for having the audacity to take a holiday you know by farmers who tell me you know they didn't even miss milking on their daughter's wedding day to which i usually told them that they were the fool <laughs> but, but it is important isn't it to know where those boundaries lie for both people And yeah, there are definite pluses to that relationship being business to business, isn't there? You can sometimes take a step back and be like, well, actually, this is a business decision, A, B and C. But actually, then it's quite difficult when you are making some quite expensive choices for the yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where we go with this discussion around gold standard. And I think it's perhaps something that our small animal colleagues have perhaps got a better handle on than we have on the farm side sometimes of, you know, what does it mean to provide gold standard within a practice? What would be the right referral route for this if it's something that the client wants to explore further and we're not able to do so ourselves? And also, you know, at what point do we just say, well, you know, the best option here is actually to, you know, is euthanasia. That's perhaps one that we are a little bit more familiar with on farm. But certainly that exploration of working within areas of competence and what to do if we want to make a referral is something that we could really begin to think about how we do that in the next number of years, really, of, of our profession. I find that a really interesting difference with the small animal side. So I guess that does bring us on to one of your other projects, which is the Vet Life, talking about some of the, the stresses and strains of the job that we've selected. How's that going at the moment and what's next on the cards for Vet Life? I mean, Vet Life is a hugely worthwhile charity, isn't it? And, you know, I think whenever we think about Vet Life, it's important to thank the people who are there as volunteers. And we're now nearing 100 of those who are on the phones 24 hours a day and on the emails 24 hours a day. But also the people who work around them, the people who are working with our financial support, who are going out and visiting people who've fallen on really quite desperately hard times, and also our health support team who sit behind the volunteers and are able to pick up and run with some of those greater mental health challenges and make sure people are accessing the right support. But also it's hugely important to recognise that it's a charity and we have to be really thankful to the people who make contributions to that charity. And yeah, I have to declare an interest because BVA, of course, are one of those contributors, as are the college, but as are so many other organisations. And it's just brilliant when we find out that Pet Life is charity of the year for a, a drug company or a university group or whoever it may be because what that enables us to do is to keep our volunteer levels at that sustainable level and it feels like you know 100 people might be quite a lot actually to put people on, on duty i think the stories that those people are hearing the things they're listening to can be quite challenging 
not every phone call, not every email, but some of them can be quite challenging. I think it's really important that we have enough people there to make it something that people still want to do and doesn't become burdensome to them. So I know that BCVA, for example, a couple of years ago, raised uh, enough money to support uh, the training of a whole cohort, so 12 or 15 uh, volunteers. And that kind of support is absolutely brilliant for the charity. It enables us to keep going. As we look forward, you know, we're at the end of two busiest years in terms of contacts. Probably not surprising, given the couple of years that we've all lived through, but they have been incredibly busy. So we're reflecting ourselves on what are the pieces of work that we might be able to do that help people perhaps slightly earlier on, you know, in that chain, really, in a a vaccination rather than a treatment type approach. There are challenges there. It falls outside the scope of VetLife's charitable remit. So we need to reconsider that. But it also prevents resource challenges for us as well. But I think the one thing that I think perhaps is a significant change for VetLife, and I would like people to hear because we've recognised and we know that we want to keep up with the fact that veterinary nurses are a really valuable professional part of the veterinary team. And there's been a bit of an anomaly within VetLife in recent years whereby veterinary nurses have not been able to to join as members and to sit on the board. And that's something that we're looking at really hard at the moment to see what we need to do in order to actually reflect the reality of our profession's working life at the moment. There's definitely quite a range of people in the the VET team and it's getting bigger as more and more go down, whether it's the ATTs within the farm side or, you know, more of the assistance and client care side of things with the small. So, yeah, the team's definitely getting bigger. But it, it was interesting how you said sort of the whole vaccination and trying to look at things before they get to the crisis levels. I did flick through the website uh, before this podcast. It was quite interesting, the whole self-care and this section on sleep and hygiene. And I think I would fail at all of those tips. So it was definitely worth a look. And it definitely yeah, was something for me to try and work on in the next few weeks, at least to try and get some sleep in maybe is a good start. Absolutely. And uh, look, you know, we're both parents of, of young children, although mine are not quite as young as yours anymore. They were there once. And uh, yeah, I think the reason I mentioned that is because it uh, all of these things come together, don't they? And, um, you know, a, a calving season, a lambing season, whilst you've got a toddler who's teething or whatever, you know, it, it really does pile the pressure on, doesn't it? I think uh, Hopefully we work in teams where we have enough uh, sort of respect for each other's commitment to be able to recognise when people are just having a tough time for whatever reason and uh, help support each other. I think that's where we're at, isn't it, Kat? Yeah, definitely. And I guess that then brings us on to the BVA. Um, I wondered if you'd just tell us a bit more about where they're at and what goes on behind the scenes there. Uh, I was the BVA president who didn't stand up and make a speech for the entire of my presidency because uh, uh, we did it all through a Zoom screen. And that brought with it some challenges, of course, in and of itself, in terms of being able to build and maintain very important relationships with all the other areas of our profession and all the other the politicians, the, the DEFRA officials, the journalists and so on and so forth. But it also had for me, the huge benefit that uh, I was able to live uh, largely at home during that time rather than being on my own in a flat uh, behind Mansfield Street. So some pros and some cons, but it's been a hugely privileged time to be involved with BVA and to work with Daniela in my junior vice president year as you know, the country went into lockdown and literally the profession turned to us and to the college and said, well, what does this mean then? You know, as we sit here pushing on towards two years after that event, 
I think it's very easy to look at it and say, well, I'm not sure that you quite got that bit right or I think you could have done that a bit differently or whatever. And I'm sure that people who say that to us would be 100% correct in what they were saying. Yeah, we've got to be fair to ourselves, haven't we, and recognise that we didn't know what was coming. I remember the Sunday before really kind of kicked off and the work from home all kicked off. Daniela was due to go to New Zealand for World Veterinary Conference. And, uh, you know, I was saying to her, just go. If anything happens this week, it'll be fine. It's not going to be that big a deal, I'm sure. Just go. I suspect she might still be in New Zealand if she had gone, you know. We didn't know what was coming. And we were following the government advice as best as we could. And the government at that point was saying to us, six, maybe 12 weeks, we think we'll have got on top of this. I don't think we would have necessarily done everything that we did if we'd have thought that people were still going to be working to some extent within that guidance and within those Royal College regulations, you know, nearly two years later, admittedly, with some waxing and waning and variations around different parts of the country. So did we get everything absolutely right? No, I don't think we did. But my goodness, it felt a huge responsibility to be trying to make those kind of judgments about you know, what was essential. And I think it's one of the things with being a farm vet and one of the reasons I was really glad to be able to take some of my clinical experience into that role was to really put some thought to where were the risk points for us. And remember, at that time, we were very much focused on surface contamination as being a way of this being spread and less on aerosol spread and so on. So we were thinking, again, slightly differently to how we would now. But that's why we ended up in those positions of thinking about young stock and TB testing, for example. It's why we ended up thinking about whether we were sharing plates of food and all those sorts of things on farms. You know, these really kind of uh, slightly strange thought processes that you have to go through, really, to be honest with no greater knowledge than anybody else, but just the responsibility to turn that bit of knowledge into some sort of judgment. Um, I find it fascinating. We did a bit of work last January on sort of client attitudes towards vets. This was our Voice of the Veterinary Profession survey last January. So more or less a year into different ways of working. And at that point, our small animal colleagues, somewhere towards seven in 10 of them, have been on the receiving end of abuse from their clients over the previous year. And that was a, quite an increase from the last time we'd asked the question. On the farm side, the number was low and it had stayed low. And I just wonder how much of that is because largely we were able to continue doing the job that we had always done. I'm not for one minute pretending that was easy or straightforward or comfortable for people. No, it wasn't. But we were still out there seeing livestock, seeing farmers, you know, working at a herd level basis, all those sorts of things that we've done for years. Whereas, you know, I was helping a small animal colleague just before Christmas and I was still in a position of going out and collecting dogs in a car park and taking them out the back and doing stuff to them and then taking them back out to the car park. And you can imagine how that's changed the dynamic, changed the relationship in those practices. So I think actually, you know, as, as farm vets, and, and I'll probably include our equine colleagues in this as well, we've perhaps been less impacted than some others might have been, haven't we? Definitely the ambulatory side, so us sort of going out to them has been less impacted compared to the sort of reception area chat extras that the small animals sort of businesses really depend on. Whereas, yeah, that whole taking them out the back and then, you know, it becomes then a mystery and it really makes that relationship so much harder because they're just not there. Yeah, without a doubt. And yeah, I mean, we see that when we talk to colleagues who are working in the pharmaceutical industry as well, don't we? Some of whom have you know, not set foot in a practice now for nearly two years. And uh, 
that's where we're at, I think, isn't it? That we need to find ways of rebuilding and rekindling those relationships now so that we can all derive the mutual benefit that we know comes from those real strong human bonds. Yeah, so that's quite interesting to see some of the differences and some of the similarities, I guess, that small animal and farm animal has within your role within BVA. I wonder then if we could just focus on how both BCVA and BVA are working together on some different projects moving forward, as we mentioned earlier, with the sustainability and then obviously with the the new challenge, which is fast coming our way, which is the animal health pathway. Um, I wondered if we could just touch on those. I wonder if it might be helpful, just think, you know, the way that we formulate policy at BVA, you know, I'm sure sometimes it might feel a little bit like I've sat in a darkened room and uh, written some words of wisdom and words of ignorance and come out with them. But there is rather more to it than that. And BCVA are integral to that. So whether it comes through working groups, whether it comes through um, council guidance or whether it comes just through direct communications, you know, we always want to hear from the species divisions who are closest to the subject. That said, one of the things that I think makes BVA able to feel like a representative across the profession and why I see the species divisions as being important in their roles here is because we have to recognise that you know, the, the profession is a very broad church. So, you know, we, we will listen to BC, you know, let's take our TB position. BCBA were hugely important in helping us to develop that. But as were BVZS, the Zoological Society, as were, you know, the chief vets, you know, particularly of England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, but just obviously just slightly different in terms of where we're at there. All of these other people who inputted into that policy, and then finally it comes back to council for ratification. And when we get back to council, it's one member, one vote. So BCVA are there, BSAVA are there, Beaver are there, let's say the Zoological Society are there. Many others are there as well. And I think what we need to make sure we do is harness the knowledge and the expertise, if we stick with this TB example, of BCVA and of BVZS, so that by the time we arrive at council, we've got something which is just so beautifully put together, so well-researched, so well-evidenced, that the council are going to feel in a position that they can be proud of what it is that we've produced and that we can have a BVA position which goes forward. But it will always, I think, be a slight middle ground on some of the topics. We won't be as far as BVZS would like us to be on some parts of it. We won't be as far as BCVA would like us to be on other parts of it. But by doing that, we get something which we can sit down with ministers, we can sit down with journalists, and we can really great confidence that what we say represents a broad swathe of the profession. I think that's really, really important and where BCBA play a huge role. And you mentioned pathway and that idea of co-design runs right through what's happening with animal health and welfare pathway at the moment. And BCBA through through your board members and number of board members have been engaged with this. It's just been brilliant through the veterinary group, through the design group and through some of the steering groups as well, through particularly the cattle sector group, of course. Uh, just making sure that the veterinary voice is heard. And by that, I don't just mean someone who's standing there and jumping up and down and chatting animal welfare or medicine sales or whatever. I mean all the practical bits as well of, okay, you'd like us to do that. How does that work? How are we going to do that? What training do we need to be able to do that? What guidance notes are we going to need to be able to do that? And that joint working with BCVA, with Sheep Vet Society, with Pig Vet Society, and we're bringing the poultry vets into that as well, even though uh, poultry aren't in the pathway you know, from day one. Again, I hope we'll deliver something which I'm sure 
the old cattle vet might be able to look at and say, well, that bit's not relevant to me because it's a bit piggy. But again, will give us something which will enable us to help take every farm through the country forward because this is just a mega opportunity, isn't it? We reckon there's about 80,000 farm units across England. And I say we reckon about because we don't actually know. <laughs> and, I, and I find that just mind-boggling. We don't actually know, but we don't. And we do know that there's a number of those units who just don't engage with veterinary care and veterinary expertise at all. And for the first time now, we've got an opportunity to go on a government-paid visit onto those farms to begin doing a little bit of sampling, to introduce them to the ideas of preventative medicine, of flock and, health, and herd health planning, and you know, to bring their health and welfare up to what I think all of us would want to aspire to in the future. We do recognise that when the pathway starts, it's going to have to try and be all things to all men to an extent. And that does mean that that dairy farm that you've been working with on a weekly basis for the last 10 years and they're you know, doing 15,000 litres on a 370-day carbon index and so there's probably not going to be an awful lot that Pathway will add to that farm this time. But what it will add is a couple of hours of your time. Um, it'll do some of their BVD testing for free, and it will give you an opportunity to use that couple of hours to benefit the relationship between you and the farmer and hopefully deliver again some benefit for the farm. So, you know, we are starting from a very disparate base, but I think by using the expertise of BCBA and others, we've got to a position where we should be able to deliver something which gives every farmer in the country the opportunity to have a great engagement with a vet. Yeah, and I think it is just remembering that whole vastness of the, the farming industry that the pathway has to suit, whether that be, as you said, the, the dairy that's already super engaged to the sheep guy who has to have a half an hour conversation with you on the phone just so you can manage to see one sheep at lambing time so we can have anything else. So there's a massive range there, but not forgetting also the range within the vets as well from the new graduate who maybe it's one of their first times out to a farm right the way through to one of the partners or directors who's been on that farm once a week for the last 10 years. So it's very different, the, the people doing the pathway visits as well as the farms themselves as well. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think there's some great opportunities here again, aren't there? You mentioned young vets and I wouldn't like to think that anybody would take a, a day one graduate out of the university, give them a bundle of paperwork and push them off to do a pathway visit you know that wouldn't be fair on that vet it certainly wouldn't be fair on that farmer but we are going to end up working slightly outside our comfort zone in some circumstances aren't we if we think you know the de minimis number for pigs to be eligible to receive a pathway visit is 50 we are not going to get the president of the pig vet society going out to a 50 sow herd to carry out a pathway visit because that would mean that they were then three days before they could go and see one of their high health clients so particularly there we are going to see people needing to be upskilled a little bit, understand enough about what happens on a pig farm, what that looks like, to be able to go out and add some value to that 50 sow herd. And, you know, I think that can feel quite intimidating, that idea. But I think we've got to recognise, haven't we? We're all vets. We're all trained. We've all graduated as veterinary surgeons. We're going to put some training guidance out there. We're going to put stuff out there that people can use to just give themselves a little bit of confidence about what it is they're doing. But if we stick with this small pig herd at the moment, it is unlikely by definition of how we've ended up on that farm. It's unlikely that they're going to be asking us those real high-end questions, you know, the kind of James Bream mastitis questions. You know, we're not going to be getting those 
on that piggy. Oh, we're, we're going to be getting some of the more entry level. What do we need to do about animal health and welfare? I keep pointing to, to some of these farms who haven't seen a vet for, for years. And I think, you know, we may end up spending our two hours on that farm working at how many animals are there and how many have died and how many are coming on. You know, it may be at that level. And I would like to think that all of us could add something to a farm who was starting from that level. And as pathway begins then to ramp up over a few years, that you begin to, you know, you grow with it, don't you? <laughs> and you're able to continue to offer improvements and development to that farm. Yeah, I think that is it. And being flexible in your approach, whether it be that pig farm or, you know, the hill sheep guy that you, you didn't even know was one of your clients until he came up on your list. You know, that's the relationship you have with him. Equally, this, this does bring in the farm vet champions, which comes across all species as another option to up your CPD there. I know I was been involved in the young stock element there, but that's quite nice in that that does have the poultry and pig elements as well as some other bits on sort of antimicrobials and things like that. So it is seems to be the very in fashion and off the topic at the moment to you know get us to use our veterinary knowledge quite wide because I think you know when you're in uni you're so I'm going to do this job and do it throughout my career but actually I'm here and I can say it's definitely changed what I'm doing compared to what I had imagined when I was 10 years graduated and I'm sure you would say the same you know if you saw yourself as your final year student self would you imagine what you were doing in 20 years time? No. <laughs> it's amazing isn't it really how we evolve and it's um i mean that takes us into the other big topic of the moment i would say in terms of veterinary politics which is um legislative reform and the college's approach to that and again somewhere that great example of bba and bcba having worked together i think we had we had sarah on one or maybe two of the working groups that looked at the bba response to legislative reform and, and there's a lot in there to be excited about in terms of the way the college are looking forward and, you know, how we might behave in the future. There are some significant sticking points. They're fairly well rehearsed now, and, you know, I don't necessarily want to dwell on them, but the one I wanted to pick on was the difference that we have about what it means to improve access, improve diversity, to be more inclusive in a veterinary career or in veterinary training uh, initially. And, For me, one of the things that we will miss if we go for a limited licensure model will be the opportunity to take somebody through different physical needs or whatever might never be someone who's going to stand behind a cow and pull a calf out of it or, you know, rectal 100 cows in a morning. They might never be that person. But there's so many other ways that you can be a brilliant farm vet now. Um, Data analysis as livestock information program comes more on board. We've talked a little bit about pathway, but we could also talk about things like TB advisory service. We could talk about um, BCVA, Gioni's training and what goes into that and how we work with farmers to really improve health and welfare on farm without ever actually, you know, uh, sticking our hand into a cow. And, and I think that's where I would like our profession to be is to think about what can people bring to this and how can we enable them to bring that to it? That is quite interesting and just how we see our EMS students when they come to us in that, you know, actually it's maybe one of their first opportunities to really get out on farm and see it from a vet's perspective um, and how, you know, we need to allow for that because whether they live on a farm or live next to a farm and have been in the parlour every day of their lives or whether they've actually been in the middle of a city and managed to get out to see one 
actually shows a lot more determination um, and they can, in the end, make a far better vet because they can see the picture as a whole, really. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And, um, you know, I would even go slightly further back in that and think about what we're asking of our school students before we admit them to vet college. And, you know, if we're really committed to equality, diversity, inclusion, then what does that mean for the person who's growing up in the middle of Liverpool or whatever and doesn't have access to friends who are farmers or teachers who've got small holdings or whatever it might be you know and I pick on those two because that was exactly what happened to me when I was at school you know my form tutor had a had a small holding and he introduced me to his mate who was a farmer and you know that's how I began to get involved in farming you know if, if you don't have that how do we make sure that people are still able to come through to university and it's one of the things I know you know a slightly different angle but I think you know Aberystwyth are beginning to explore aren't they and, and, and others are as well but I just want to pick on the Aberystwyth example because there's a different challenge there. You know, we've got areas of mid Wales where you may not be able to study chemistry at A level in your local school because it's just not able to be offered, you know, in that small rural rural school. So, you know, if we continue to just say, well, you've got to have an A level chemistry, then we miss, not just we miss, the doctors miss, the dentists miss, anyone else who wanted a chemistry A level miss those potential students and those potential professionals of the future. So, what else can we do? Yeah, we recognise that a good grounding in science is important, but how else might we achieve that with people? And it's all part of that same picture, I think, isn't it, of enabling access to people who would make great vets for the future. Yeah, so it is interesting how um, Aberyst was trying to widen that, but I think us as the, the clinical vets that see the students when they're back in their EMS or seeing clinical years, how we can help on farms and farmers are saying the right or the wrong things then we can back them up and try and widen the people who are going to become vets and try and make them become farm vets. Absolutely and that's about making people feel comfortable in their environment isn't it you know that will come in all sorts of different ways won't it of you know supporting people as they develop through their learning supporting people as they build those relationships but I think also you know we've probably got to look at ourselves and think about what can we do better as a profession to make sure that our colleagues be they students or graduates feel comfortable in the environments that they're working in. And I think, you know, and I'm haunted by, I'm not proud of the way I responded to a farm client. He was a farmer at my practice. And I knew that if I left him alone with a female student, he would find some excuse to try and touch them. The way I dealt with that was to make sure that he was never alone with a female, well, with anybody really, but certainly with a female student. But at no point during being his vet did I ever say, is there any chance you could stop touching my students, please? And I think, you know, I'm not proud of that. I use it as an example of where I think we've got to do better. It's a big challenge because that farmer was worth probably a graduate salary a year to the practice, you know, but that's not an excuse and it's got to change. We've got to provide environments where people feel safe, feel comfortable and recognise that they are going to be supported by their colleagues and by their employers. You know, if, if either farmer's or indeed colleagues step out of line and are inappropriate. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that research that was done last year that says of all of those inappropriate comments or microaggressions, two-thirds of them came from colleagues. Although we may be comfortable to point towards some of our farmers and just say, well, they don't get out much or whatever, if two-thirds of the claims of, of inappropriate comments or microaggressions are being made against our colleagues, you know, we've got to look at ourselves, haven't we, and say, what can we do better tomorrow than we did today? 
where did we excuse something as banter that actually we shouldn't have done, that we should do better? And I think we can all go further on that journey, can't we, and make sure that we're providing environments that keep people, that nurture people, and make them want to be farm vets for the next 40 years. You know, that's what we're after, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That working, as we said, as part of a team does take work. And that's from all people on the team, whether it's the vets you're with all the time or the admin or the dispensary staff, you know, um, working as a team comes with its good and bad points, doesn't it? In that you do have to be open enough to feel confident enough to share some of your difficulties and be hopefully respectful of other people's views when they actually are at a good point and saying, look, I'm having a hard day I'm just going to go back and do this I think that's made even more challenging with more and more people basing themselves at home as we did mention as farm vets we've been less hit than other sectors but um, actually that sort of chat around the the coffee when you get back from a hard day is quite important rather than finishing your day and going straight home absolutely Thank you, James, for discussing all those varied points from EMS students, career progression, BCVA, BVA, and of course, vet life, just to mention a few. Here at BCVA, we are continuing to build our website and include some of these areas, so please take a look. Also, if there are any other topics you would like us to cover here on Cattlecast, then please just say. So, for today, thank you for listening, and we will look forward to the next Cattlecast.